0: In the early 1990s, Michael Eilig rose to prominence as a club promoter and founding member of the Club Kids, before being arrested for the vicious murder of Angel Melendez while high on ketamine.
1: His story was brought to the big screen twice by directors Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato, first in 1998's Party Monster, The Shockumentary, and again in 2003's Party Monster, starring Macaulay Culkin.
0: This is based on a true crime. (laughs)
1: I'm Chelsea and I love true crime.
0: And I'm David and I love horror movies and I love to party. (laughs) Yeah, do you? (laughs) I love monsters.
1: I love monsters and I love going to bed at 1030 every (laughs) night.
0: You weren't a club kid?
1: I was not a club kid. I was a little young for that. What about you?
0: I was not a club kid.
1: No. no, we're both a little too lame to be club kids, but <laughs> we're gonna enjoy talking about this case, and hopefully you guys will enjoy hearing about it. I know this is a movie that's been on my radar for many, many years, and I was very excited to finally watch it.
0: Yeah, totally. But first, the format change: forty minutes of banter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh wait. No. I'm just kidding. I, Can joke, I, I joke. Give
1: give the people what they want. We made them wait long enough for this episode. Sorry. Yep. Life is crazy. Life
0: will continue to be crazy. So you gotta sit through movie yep. or trivia first. Oh wait, no. <laughs>
1: (laughs) if uh if you ask me to stick to a set schedule with this probably the episodes would just never come so thank you all for sticking with us despite the fact that this is our second episode of the new year and we already are not releasing it on the first of the month yes. the first Monday of the month whatever we said we were going to release it on all these
0: podcasts I listen to though that have Patreons they're always like well promote the Patreon at the top of the episode
1: oh yeah we did release our Patreon episode on time
0: we did yeah we totally we're did. good what was that on Audrey Rose it was On Audrey Rose and past yes. lives
1: yeah that was a fun one to talk about
0: which we were contra- contractually obligated To deliver a on time within the month period of an episode over on Patreon, it's true. So if you have an extra dollar, if you want a sticker, we have the show too. So we love you all. We will still
1: release one episode a month, but it's going to be kind of a surprise when it comes out. Yeah, be like, oh, what's this in my podcast app? I didn't realize they were still a thing.
0: Yeah, we love you all except for the bad reviews. Oh,
1: I haven't read reviews (laughs) in like six months. So So if you're writing a positive review, thank you. But
0: if not, we we don't read it anyway. So um, all right. Well, shall we begin? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. Well, Michael Aleg was born April 29th of 1966 in South Bend, Indiana, to parents John and Elkie Eilig. Whew. Did I say that right? <laughs> Good enough. He was the second of two sons. His parents divorced when he was four years old. He was an excellent student in school and received straight A's and graduated in the top 8% of Penn High School. I did not graduate in the top 8% of my high school.
1: Neither did I, but my school is full of smart people. I was about (laughs) average.
0: Uh, Michael did not exactly flourish at Penn High School. Michael was gay and was often bullied at school and within the conservative South Bend community. Longing to find a community of his own, Michael decided to attend Fordham University, which had given him a scholarship. In August of 1984, his mother and her boyfriend drove 18-year-old Michael to the Bronx and dropped him off for his first semester of school. He initially had planned to study architecture, but ended up transferring not long after to the Fashion Institute of Technology. It was there that Michael met a student named Ludovic, whom he described as flamboyant and sexually ambiguous. Ludovic, or Ludovic, was dating the artist Keith Haring at the time, and Michael scored an invitation to a party thrown by Keith. He described the party as follows, quote, This was a modern-day speakeasy, with 300 people lined up outside. The doorman selected who got in, one at a time, like a florist chooses roses and carnations for a bouquet. Grace Jones was there. Cameras flashed. Ludovic, who was led out of our limo on a leash, wore nothing but underwear and white body paint. It was unlike anything Michael had experienced in his conservative hometown, and for a teen coming to terms with his sexuality, the New York party scene was both exhilarating and liberating. He was especially struck with the fact that many of the so-called celebutants attending these parties were famous for nothing other than their outrageous party personas. Soon after, Michael dropped out of college to become a busboy at ateria a well-known nightclub owned by German expat Rudolf Piper.
1: While working at Danceteria, Michael began to learn all he could about the club business and party promoting, He organized his first party at a different club that was owned by Rudolph uh, called Tunnel, and he picked the theme of consumer hell, inspired by the rampantness of conspicuous consumption in America. He described the party saying, quote, I paid someone to bring me 10 shopping carts from a store in New Jersey. TV commercials played on the video screens. I wore a hat made out of an Oreo box and Fruit Loop earrings. People arrived in saran wrap dresses stuffed with Cheerios and Fluffer Nutter. It was crazy. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So Michael was initially shunned by the celebutants of New York's club scene, but he eventually did shoot to stardom due to his ability to throw these very memorable parties. In the late 90s, he became friendly with James St. James, who is uh, kind of the co-lead in the movie, although it seems like his, his role in real life was a mayb- maybe a little bit less uh, in the forefront in the story. Uh, but he, at the time, he was a very notorious partier, and he also met uh, DJ Kioki, and he began dating him. The three became the epicenter for the youth culture group known as the Club Kids. The group was known for their outrageous costumes and party personas, James St. James described them as, quote, part drag, part clown, part infantilism. Uh, While Michael Musto, who is a columnist for Village Voice and who chronicled the rise and fall of the Club Kids, wrote that they were, quote, a cult of crazy fashion and petulance. They are terminally superficial, have dubious aesthetic values, and are master manipulators, exploiters, and, thank God, partiers. Members of the Club Kids included RuPaul, Richie Rich, Amanda Lepore, Lisa Edelstein, who you might recognize as Cuddy on House, which David never watched, but which I uh, watched religiously throughout its entire run. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, And a variety of others. Uh, Some of them have the craziest nicknames of all time that I love. (laughs) So my favorites that I found on the Wikipedia list include Julius Teaser and Jenny Talia.
0: <laughs> nice. Oh, get I it? Like those. Yeah. yeah. It's good. Um, so, in March of
1: 1988, the Club Kids were featured on the cover of New York Magazine, and they only gained prominence from there. According to Michael, quote, We became the darlings of the club scene, paid merely to show up and bring a bit of fabulousness to the mix. We led a pampered existence of fancy dinners and media exposure.
0: Well, in 1988, Michael was hired as a promoter by Peter Gayton, the owner of the Limelight and three other prominent New York nightclubs. The Limelight was located in an old Gothic revival church in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. Michael's parties there became infamous, in part due to his own infamous behavior, pulling stunts such as urinating on clubgoers and throwing money into the crowds to cause a ruckus. He was also known for throwing outlaw parties, which would basically just pop up in all sorts of random places, such as in a Dunkin' Donuts or on the subway. Eventually, he was given the job of throwing regular themed parties there on Wednesday nights called Disco 2000 parties. Some of those themes included the pee drinker, Operation Emergency Room, and an annual Filthy Mouth contest.
1: I bet I could win that. (laughs) You wouldn't know it because I keep the podcast pretty clean, but...
0: Yeah, and just to specify the Filthy Mouth part, not the pee drinker part.
1: No, no, not the pee drinker part.
0: <laughs> I just had to clarify.
1: Thank you for clarifying. our audience, yes.
0: Um, he also held a rather prophetic birthday party for himself in May of 1995, themed Blood Feast. The flyer featured someone eating the brain of a man whose head had been bashed in. A hammer sat nearby.
1: And this was actually spoofed. So if you've seen the cover of Party Monster, it's like a spoof of that art is actually uh, the, the mock-up for... The party flyer it's pretty cool
0: yeah definitely some of those flyers are pretty amazing yeah well michael claimed to be anti anti-drugs initially though some drugs such as ecstasy and cocaine were widespread in the scene due to them being uppers in the early 90s though the introduction introduction of new drugs led to a dark turn these included rohipnol and the animal tranquilizer ketamine Heavy downers that would basically turn their users into zombies. Ooh. According to Michael, his drug use first began when he was making a point to his boyfriend, DJ Kyoki, after repeatedly discovering his cocaine stash. Soon, he was hooked. Michael was hospitalized twice after overdosing on a mixture of heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, and ketamine, and was repeatedly both arrested and sent to rehab. By 1995, the Drug Enforcement Agency was actively pursuing drug dealers involved with the club scene and they targeted the limelight in particular. They accused Peter Gayton of allowing drugs to be sold there and repeatedly closed the club down in the 90s, though it continued to reopen. For the most part, drug dealers who frequented the, cru- the club were small potatoes and basically only sold enough drugs to support their own drug habits. One of these small time dealers was a club kid by the name of Angel Melendez.
1: Angel Melendez was born Andre Melendez on May 1st, 1971, in Colombia. His parents moved with Angel to New York City when he was eight years old. As he grew up, he became a regular of the New York City club scene, known for wearing his signature feathered wings. In the early 90s, he got involved with Peter Gayton and began selling drugs at the Limelight and other nightclubs, including Webster Hall. His involvement with the, quote, Webster Hall crowd led to him being looked down on by Michael and the other OG club kids due to that crowd being considered kind of second rate. Still, when Angel was in town over the weekends, he sometimes stayed in Michael's apartment rather than returning home to Queen's. On March 16th of 1996, Michael heard through the grapevine that the DEA was planning to raid several clubs and arrest 30-ish drug dealers with the ultimate goal of getting them to turn on Peter. Michael called all of the drug dealers and told them to stay home that day, but at 2 a.m., Angel showed up at the limelight with a group of friends. Michael told the bouncers not to let him inside, and Angel complained because he was owed several days' pay from the club. But Michael still would not let him inside, telling him that it was for his own good. And this is according to Michael, by the way. All right. Uh, So um, Michael's side of the story for what happened was uh, later that morning on March 17th, Angel showed up at his apartment. At the time, a fellow club kid, Robert D. Freeze Riggs, was staying with Michael to help him renovate. Um, Apparently, Angel demanded that Michael take him to the limelight to collect his money, and Michael refused. Freeze then teased Angel about his unusual costume of a captain's hat and wings and told him that they only let him hang out with them because he provided drugs. A physical scuffle then ensued, which sent Michael through a glass china cabinet. Angel began biting Michael, and Freeze grabbed a hammer nearby and hit him with the wooden handle to get him to stop. Michael described what happened next as, quote, Angel fell to the floor. We sat on top of him and, wrapping a sweatshirt around my hand, I smashed it into Angel's face. We were all high on ketamine. Maybe it was the combination of me doing it for too long or having more strength than I realized, but Angel stopped writhing. We laid him on the couch thinking he was unconscious. It wasn't until a few hours later that we realized he was dead.
0: Well, Freeze gave a rather different account as part of his confession to police in December of 1996. According to Freeze, he was out of the room when the confrontation between Angel and Michael began and only intervened when he heard Michael crying out for help. When he entered the room, he said that he saw Angel strangling Michael while demanding his money. That was when Freeze grabbed the hammer and hit Angel over the head with it three times. Once he was unconscious, Michael began strangling Angel. Freeze says that he told Michael to stop and then left the room. When he came back, he said that he saw that Michael had injected Angel with a cleaning chemical and poured it in his mouth, which he then wrapped with duct tape. Basically, their separate statements were both contradictory and self-serving. The two of them basically agree on what happened next, however. The pair kept the body in the bathtub for about a week on ice until the smell was just too much to bear. According to Michael, this is when he poured Drano on the body to try to mask the smell. Knowing they had to do something, and both being continually high on all sorts of drugs, the men decided to dismember the body. According to Michael, they worked together, while according to Freeze, he gave Michael ten bags of heroin in exchange for him doing the deed. Angel's legs were cut off first and placed in separate duffel bags. Each bag was taken individually to the Hudson River, and thrown in close to where the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum sits. They put the remainder of his body into a large television box. They took the box to the street and were able to get a cab driver to help them load it into the trunk and take them to the West Side Highway at around 25th Street. After the taxi driver dropped them off, they threw the box into the Hudson River.
1: In the weeks that followed, Michael confessed to just about anyone who would listen about the murder, but most people just assumed that he was joking around to get attention. He joked about the murder on a party invitation and even contacted the Manhattan DA about rumors circulating that he was the killer, but they all assumed it was a prank. One person who did take the rumors seriously was Michael Musto, the Village Voice columnist. On April 23rd, Musto published a blind item titled Nightclubbing based on the rumors swirling around the club scene. The item read, quote, here's the latest story going around about what supposedly happened in that recent Clubland scandal. Mr. Mess was fighting with Mr. Dealer about money Mr. Dealer was owed. It escalated to the point where Mr. Dealer was choking Mr. Mess just at the moment when Mr. Mess Number Two happened to walk in. Mr. Mess Number Two, a quick thinker, promptly hit Mr. Dealer over the head with a hammer. Not happy about that, he and Mr. Mess decided to finish Mr. Dealer off by shooting him up with Drano, a trick even the twisted twosome in Diabolique didn't come up with. After Mr. Dealer died. The other two set to work, chopping the body into pieces and throwing them in the river. But I didn't actually kill him, Mr. More of a Mess Than Ever has allegedly remarked. But he's unavailable for comment. So lines up quite well with Freeze's story. Wow. Not so well with Michael's story. Yeah,
0: no kidding. I like
1: I love the tone of that, but the fact that it's about an actual murder, like You know, I've read my share of blind items about, you know, celebrity scandals and who's cheating on who or who's doing drugs or whatever. But like an actual murder, just go to the police. Seriously. No kidding. Uh, So for anyone even remotely connected to the club scene, the blind item was easy enough to decipher. Four days later, on April 27th, Page Six picked up Musto's story with their own article titled, mystery of the missing club kid by this point angel's father and brother johnny had come to town in an attempt to raise the alarm about angel's mysterious disappearance but to no avail despite michael's involvement being just about the worst kept secret police never questioned him uh, likely due to them simultaneously courting him in an attempt to get him to testify against peter Gayton about the the drug dealing at the club
0: All right. Well, on September the 8th of 1996, police could turn a blind eye no longer when a dismembered body was pulled from the Hudson River. The body was immediately connected to Angel and the rumors about how he had died. But coincidentally, the body didn't actually turn out to be him. Instead, the discovery sparked investigators to revisit their files. And they finally made the connection to a John Doe found on the beach at Miller Field in Staten Island by a group of kids in late March of 1996, just weeks after Angel's disappearance. The body was originally misidentified as being that of an Asian male, but dental records confirmed that it was Angel. As the investigation heated up, Michael fled the city, moving into a motel with his drug-dealing boyfriend in Toms River, New Jersey.
1: So close to where I grew up!
0: Wow, that is really close. Yep. On December the 5th, police caught up with Michael and placed him under arrest at the same time arresting Freeze, who was still living in Manhattan. The pair took plea deals, confessing to the lesser charge of manslaughter in exchange for 10- to 20-year prison sentences. After being arrested, Michael told Musto, quote, I know why I blabbed. I must have wanted to stop me. I was spinning out of control. It's like the old saying, what do you have to do to get attention around here? Kill somebody? Michael continued to do drugs in prison and tested positive multiple times, resulting in being placed in solitary confinement and his being denied parole in 2008. Finally, in March of 2009, he made the decision to get sober. Five years later, in May of 2014, Michael Eilig was granted parole. He served 17 years for the murder. Freeze had already been paroled in 2010 asked what he planned to do upon gaining his freedom by a reporter for the Rolling Stone. Michael replied, quote, I want to devote the rest of my life to something a lot less self-indulgent. In the beginning, with the club kids thing, we were presenting this notion that there was a place in the world where you could not only be accepted, but celebrated for your differences. I'm really good at spreading that message. I've got movie ideas, I've got TV ideas. I think that's my calling in life. I'll never be able to make up for what I've done, but... I'll be able to go on in that direction.
1: So do you have a guess, David? Do you think he's actually been less self-indulgent since his release? Mm, maybe. Maybe. Uh, well, in the years that followed, Michael seems to have really embraced that self-indulgent lifestyle. Oh, all He right. has aimed to capitalize on his infamy in any way possible, including attempting to sell his memoirs, wanting to be a reality TV star, the definition of a celebutante, in my opinion, uh, and also selling old flyers from his party promotion days on eBay.
0: Ooh, wait, what?
1: Yeah? You gonna go on oh, eBay right now? Hey. Uh, so, his old boyfriend, DJ Kiyoki, was able to hook him up with a job throwing parties at a new venue, the Rumpus Room. Uh, one promotional flyer for an event he threw there read, quote, Michael Aleg is free from parole. Is it the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning? Also, according to uh, Musto, that reporter for the Village Voice, after Michael was released, he began actually harassing him about the content of the blind item. He was particularly offended by the that line about Drano, about injecting um, Angel with Drano, even though it was pretty identical to what freeze wrote in his confession according to musto quote he kept saying that was preventing him from getting a job not the fact that he murdered and dismembered someone but this drano thing that led me to think he was totally delusional so more recently in february of 2017 michael was arrested for trespassing in joyce kilmer park police found a pipe and a bag of crystal meth on his person. He was arraigned and pled guilty to trespassing and he received a conditional discharge. The drug charges were also dropped after he claimed that it was not crystal meth, but instead uh, healing crystals. Oh, so right on. maybe it was true. If they dropped the charges, it seems like, do you need a pipe to smoke your healing crystals? I don't know, but... Uh, he
0: was storing them in a tube and they just thought it was a pipe. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Maybe. But he did tell Page Six that he had done ketamine. Since his release, this was the same drug that he was on when he killed Angel. And he said he did it on New Year's Eve of 2015. The most recent mention of Michael is in a Page Six article from October of 2018 describing how he will miss his planned Halloween party due to a badly infected leg injury sustained while scouting locations for the party. Michael provided a quote for the story, saying, OMG, this infection on my leg is so scary. People are always saying my personality is infectious, but this is ridiculous.
0: Oh, man, that's got to be... That should have been a tagline for the movie. Yeah. Although it was after the movie, so... Well, the...
1: Yeah. The end. That's the end of my story. I thought that was kind of a... Funny, light quote to end on for a story about someone who seems to be uh, living it up post-murder.
0: People are always saying my personality is infectious, but this is ridiculous.
1: My goodness. Um, So I did want to call out my sources, and there are many. There's, oh my gosh, there's just so much to read about this story. It's a little... It's just crazy, kind of the the fame surrounding it. Is uh, it
0: is it partially because it's so recent and he got out and is just out there like now? No, or? I think
1: there's something about it that just resonates with people. I think the just crazy lifestyle of the club kids as a, a framing device for you know the the murder adds a little bit of the what is it. Je ne sais quoi.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I get the point about the Drano, though. It's kind of like, you know, you hear he's like, oh, it'd be okay. I dismembered someone. But then the Drano thing was like too far.
1: It's weird. There is something about that that's a little too far. It's so
0: visual. I feel like I can feel it in my gut when I think of like, oh, because I know what Drano does to drains. I can't imagine what it does to a, a body.
1: Yeah. And, I don't know. I think that there's no way to really prove how it went down. You know, I'm sure that they found Drano or some kind of cleaning product on there. But, you know, he says that he added it after the fact to stop the smell, like, long after Angel was was already murdered. Yeah. But... I, the fact that that was the rumor swirling days afterwards, and it was what Freeze confessed to, you know, it, it doesn't really seem like a coincidence to me, I guess. Yeah,
0: where did that blind item come from? Hmm.
1: Gosh, I just can't believe that was a blind item. Yeah, you're
0: right, though, about that being a murderer. Now, like, I I don't think I'd heard about blind items until you were, like, telling me about, oh, so and so celebrity's dating so-and-so while being dating so-and-so. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Oh, that's the thing.
1: I used to read Crazy Days and Nights all the time. I think he was a celebrity lawyer, but his identity was a secret. and He oh. he apparently had the inside scoop, but who knows? It could have all been a, a crock of crap. <laughs> <But> <laughs> mm.
0: Was that one of Michael's parties?
1: <laughs> oh,
0: oh. <laughs> the pea party and the crock of crap party. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, before we get to the movie discussion, I do want to. Um, List my sources. Probably the biggest one was an article actually written by Michael Aleg for the New York Post. Uh, the title is "Club Kid Killer Relives Bloody Crime." So that's where you know I got most of his quotes from, and the kind of story of how the murder went down from his perspective. Um, there's two articles for from the Rolling Stone. One by Gavin Edwards, uh, quote, The Party Monster's Return, Michael Eilig Talks After 17 Years in Jail. Uh, and the others by Sean McCreish. Uh Michael Eilig Did His Time for Murder, Now He Wants to Party. That should be the tagline of a movie.
0: Oh, that is good. Yeah. That could be like a follow-up movie or something.
1: Yeah. Uh, the quotes from michael musto are from an article in the village voice obviously uh, the article is called remembering the early days of the michael Leg crime coverage and then freeze's confession was actually on the smoking gun website uh the title is club kids kill an angel written confession
0: wow right on yeah so uh all right we'll sit tight we're gonna move on to a discussion of the film party monster uh there's a lot of good stuff i think we're gonna chat about so stick with us we'll be right back i think it's so important to begin with a bag don't you one day i realized i didn't want to have to get up in the morning and go to work i'm michael out king of the club kids i want you to teach me how to be fabulous don't dream it be it
1: fabulous, yeah!
0: so it should come as no surprise that i ended up in new york city Wanted to create my own world. One big party. You need me to promote this place. We'll see. You won't regret this. You've gone too far with the drugs. They're the feds. and they're watching around the clock. You're just paranoid, Michael. Where's my money? Anything or anyone missing? Angel. You should just turn yourself in. I'm getting away with murder, and you're just jealous. (laughs) How do you do to support yourself? He's a drug dealer. Don't you want to know how I got rid of the bomb? Okay, Mr. Psycho Killer. I'll play along. You're going to have to pay for all of this. Because of me, people know who you are. And I decided to make you my first superstar. And we're back. After Michael, who grew up in Indiana, makes a big move to New York City and meets the fabulous James St. James, he quickly finds himself an underground legend as club kid promoter. After finding tremendous success and the excesses of such a lifestyle, he also found great tragedy after the murder of his friend Angel. Or was Michael responsible for Angel's demise?
1: Yes, yes, he was.
0: <laughs> yeah, spoiler. I know alert. that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are some of these. Some of these movies are hard because it's like um, we know like the whole plot thing, but it's like uh, it's a film. You know, it's like yeah. not all the events are true to life um, in this movie, which as. Uh, You know, after talking about the true crimes, I'm really thinking about some of the things that, you know, they kind of embellished for the movie. Yeah. But I do think they did a good job overall of kind of framing Michael coming to New York and being thrust into this scene and then becoming like a club kid superstar and Um. the murder and everything. What do you think?
1: I enjoyed it a lot. It took me a little while to get into it. I think that the movie kind of opens with... James St. James and Michael Alig, uh, kind of hanging out. And Michael's basically saying, I killed this person. And James St. James is saying, I don't believe you. And then he kind of passes out. And then Michael's like, let's start at the beginning. And then it does a flashback. Ah, I didn't love that opening. I kind of wish they had just opened with him arriving at New York. It didn't really feel necessary to me. And I kind of think it's a way that right off the bat... They really inflated James Saint James's character, which I think makes sense because he's the one that wrote the the great American novel about it, which I have not read.
0: Yeah, uh, and not to bury the lead, but uh, Michael is played by Macaulay Culkin, and James Saint James is Seth Green. Yep. And wow, it's so 90s. <laughs> it is, but I mean,
1: I they, think they do a great job. They're.
0: Um, I will say they're incredible in these roles and I was really blown away because I've n- not seen either of them in these type, this type of film. Yeah. Um, and to they're... me, Seth
1: green was the more shocking one. Cause I've really only seen him in like Buffy and then playing like super comedy roles. Yeah. 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 So it was nice seeing him kind of having a bit more meat to it.
0: He was not Scott evil in this movie.
1: <laughs> no, no, he was not. Um, yeah,
0: so you enjoyed it?
1: I did. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I think I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, uh, especially because of maybe the way that it, it opened. Um, but I was completely engrossed by, you know, the maybe two thirds point and a few of the scenes uh, the scene where he overdoses in the hotel room. I thought it was like so well done. Like, beautifully done. I love the music that they chose. Um, It was like very moving and kind of having stuff like that and heavier stuff interspersed with just insane costumes and like over the top everything. (laughs) Um, I I thought it was really well done. What about you?
0: Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was stylish and it was fun and it was like a world that I wasn't really familiar with, but it was also like really creative. I think, like you said, the costumes were pretty amazing. And I you know, I didn't really know how ornate these parties were and how they were themed. And I thought that, you know, there's a lot of creativity on display. Um And also, yeah, just like I said, seeing Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green really so committed to these roles, you know, I was very, very um, impressed with the film. And as an independent movie, I think the budget was like $5 million. And it went. It seemed to go a really long way.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, the the depiction of kind of the glamour and then how like it got so bad with the drugs. It's like you could see it on the screen. It's like starts out almost magical, and you're kind of you kind of love everyone. You're kind of cheering for them, and then you see uh, like some of the scenes they shot in the apartment you know prior to them killing angel where they like take all of his drugs and everyone's just a mess and it's like i don't know it it feels very visceral the depictions of of their drug problems i also like the giant rat costume
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that was cool yeah and they've also kind of created a villain in in peter gaten's uh character
1: you know in real life he does have an eye patch that was not just for the movie wow yeah. I, yeah, I did not come across that during my research, and then I saw the eye patch in the movie. I was like, "Oh, they turned him into like a comic book villain," and then I looked up a picture of him. I was like, "Oh, wait, <laughs>
0: <Oops."> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah." And that's Dylan McDermott, who. He's in another, he's been in some some cool genre stuff, but the one that I think of when I think of him is he's in Hardware, which is a really great cyberpunky post-apocalyptic film. Really You've
1: showed me trailers, but we never actually watched it together. So oh, we'll have to watch right. it together.
0: There's an interesting, I don't know if it's a framing device, it's more of a plot point. And that is that, you know, throughout the film, James St. James has writer's block. And, you know, I I feel like he's, you know, creativity is such a, a an important theme of the movie and he's trying to write, not the great american novel but he he's I
1: think he actually specifically <laughs> says the great american <laughs> okay, novel <yeah>. though.
0: <laughs> right and and that's interesting and and not and spoiler alert he does end up writing a novel after all the events transpire and it, yeah, it's called disco bloodbath yes and it is it's is a real a real book yeah about like life his life life in the club the club scene and, and about and, the uh, murder yep yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, like we said in the top of the episode, the directors had done a documentary of Michael and this whole scene and event and everything that occurred with the murder. And they got together and ended up making this film. And it is Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Well, actually, this was a huge a huge thing that they did. However, they have an insane body of work that they have done over the years. They've worked, continued to work together, directing documentaries and films, including... Like we said, the documentary of Party Monster and this film. They've done the Menendez Blood Brothers TV movie that came out That's like two crazy. years ago. Yep. That's so cool. Yeah.
1: Oh, I bet they're uh,
0: murderinos. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, documentarians. They did the Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures documentary that came out. Oh, I love his ago. photography. Yeah. Uh, they did the Wishful Drinking Carrie Fisher TV movie. And they uh, have continued producing RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars.
1: Oh, awesome. Yeah.
0: So just look them up on IMDb. You will will see an insane list of documentary, film, and television credits. So they are, they are quite the accomplished pair. And as I said the budget was not surprised 5 million dollars. It came out September 7th of 2003 in limited release and it didn't have a huge box office. It was like 730,000 I think. Oh no. But that's kind of a specialty market. So yeah. in terms of home video figures, that's like a little harder to find out. So I I could not see any numbers on excuse me, on that Key. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. I didn't see it when it came out. So this was the first time watch for both of us, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. So we talked about the cast. We already gave away the big uh, the big leads. Macaulay Calkin, most famously, I think, known for Kevin McAllister in The Home Alone 1 and 2. Yes. To Lost in New York, which I think it's a lot more uh, TV play. <laughs> Than the first one around the holidays, and then Seth Green, who of course is Scott Evil, but um, you know, a movie I've never seen him in, but I I really want to see his Idle Hands. Have you seen that?
1: I've not, no. All right, I've seen like art of him. Is is he a zombie or something in that?
0: I think it was the. Uh, I feel like I've yeah. seen
1: so many images of him with, like, the bottle in his head. Oh, spoiler alert, I guess, Ooh. since you haven't seen it. But I just, I just, <laughs>
0: just assumed you had seen that, too. Have, have just never seen it. Dylan McDermott plays Peter Gaten. And the rest of the, some of the top cast, Mia Kirshner plays Natasha, who is Peter's wife. I feel like she is both the voice of reason and also uh, quite threatening to Michael's, like, future with the club. But she does a great job. One superstar of this movie that I feel uh, I had no idea was even in it is Will Cruz cruise who plays angel yes and hugh then, yeah. it's hugh
1: from star trek discovery
0: yeah so
1: exciting
0: yep and he yeah. seems to be like the same age for, forever <laughs> it's
1: i yeah it's pretty nuts that this was what how many years ago now yeah more like, than 20 uh,
0: 15 years ago yeah 15? yeah 15 no,
1: 2003 movies 2003 yeah Oh, I'm thinking of the crime in the '90s. Oh right, uh, yeah. 2003. All right, no, he's yeah. not the real Angel. Still
0: a while. <laughs> <laughs> Back from the dead. We have Wilmer Vandermar as DJ Kioki.
1: So he's um, was it that '70s show? Is yes. his kind of claim to fame? Right. Yeah, yeah, and he's
0: uh become like a a film producer and creative force. I think behind the scenes, a lot of stuff. We have Chloe Severny. I can never say her name right. I have.
1: N- I honestly have no clue.
0: Yeah, but she is. She becomes like Michael's partner. Uh, about the what maybe the halfway point maybe two thirds of the way in it's like uh, she's kind of a fan of the club kids and then she gets wrapped up in their world.
1: Yeah, and her character actually well she is, gets you as a real club kid. Um, and her character ends up dying after Michael goes to prison of an overdose, which is is true for the real person as well. So you know, kind it's
0: of a, yeah it's sad sad. yeah Yeah. she's kind
1: of brought into this and i mean he he kind of brings her into this and takes her under his wing and gives her a fatal drug problem
0: yeah yeah Yeah. there is a special cameo well not cameo it's kind of a smaller role by marilyn manson playing christina superstar and i i love this role in this movie just really good just Just because
1: you love marilyn manson Yeah, yeah but i
0: mean like i feel really bad about saying like he plays kind of the comic relief, but there there are some because tragically I think that uh Christina dies right yes um, before he's arrested
1: in the movie yeah. yeah
0: but in the film you know there's like a montage of all of these like club events happening and and there's a moment where they're all they're all partying in this uh like semi truck trailer
1: oh my gosh and Christina's, yeah is
0: like in charge of like driving them out before the cops come yeah but I guess like. She's like high or whatever. Yeah, and then before they can even like get very far, she kind of passes out, and then the cops catch up with them, and uh, it doesn't go so so well. Yeah, but but there's a there's a great scene. Um, it's sort of Angel's big, uh, like kind of. I feel like it's a very iconic introduction because earlier in the movie, Angel meets up with Michael, and then, um there's like a moment where is it it's something about oh angel well i'll you know you can come to party when you have your. that's actually it's the same
1: scene it's the truck scene um and he shows up with yeah he he kind of comes at the end of the that truck scene and they need someone to close the door and uh, michael says to him you know close the door for us and angel says you know but if i close the door for you i i can't come in and party and he says if you do this now we'll make you a vip and i think it's, it's that very scene where he introduced himself as angel and michael asks well where are your wings and then at the party at the fried chicken place i think at the very end of that he shows up with the the captain's hat and the wings which i didn't see anything anywhere that that's real i think that you know i don't want to give michael credit for developing angel's persona when michael murdered him so as far as i know the captain's hat and the angel wings were entirely the creation of angel so
0: it's a great movie moment but, but it also is a great like, movie moment yeah. yeah you think about like real life and it's like okay i you know yeah. yeah you're i think yeah i i'm i'm with you there um as i don't know if maybe it's an indicator of budgets of movies but it seems like the lower the budget the less number of taglines i'm able to find
1: Aw, <laughs> so, bummer
0: yeah um i got two good evil fun
1: meh mediocre
0: all right there's a the second one and the last one Till death do they party. Yeah, that's the best. That's perfect.
1: (laughs) I love it. That's a great tagline for this movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. The first one reminded me of like Army of Darkness. Good, (laughs) bad, I'm the guy with the gun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The critics were kind of harsh on this movie. Not us as critics, but critics in general. I think the overall culmination, according to the crazy algorithms behind Rotten Tomatoes, is uh, 28%.
1: I could see why a, a typical critic might not like it.
0: But I liked it. I don't know. I feel like this would speak to though the whole like critics who were into like the art house crowd and especially in two thousand three, I mean, I feel like uh the online journalism was not as uh as big as it is today. I feel like, you know, newspapers and magazines that would be taking the time to watch a screening of Party Monster would give it a little bit more consideration.
1: I don't know. I feel like, uh, especially back then, like the fancy movies.
0: I Here's what I could see. Yeah. I could see critics being maybe thrown off by the talent, like the actors, like being like mm-hmm. Macaulay Culkin, Seth Green, just like sitting there, like kind of stuffy and not buying it because like these are two one's a child actor the other is like a screwball slacker comedian or whatever it's also it felt
1: like a movie for younger people that maybe might not be appreciated by like 60 somethings who probably saw the club kids and they were like conform to gender stereotypes you youngins yeah
0: well it's interesting too that they choose to i mean this is on uh they were on TV shows, right? Like, the club yeah. kids were sort of paraded out in front of, like, the Montel Williams's um, of the day. And uh, there's actually a, a scene where they are they are on Montel Williams. Yeah. And that was... Uh, they were allowed to do that free of charge. So the show did not charge them at all to kind of uh, stage it. With, yeah. Uh, I think it's what John Stamos is acting as, the host. Yeah. Some of the... Uh, there were some real club kids in that scene. So...
1: Oh yeah, I recognized Amanda Lepore.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was very cool. Richie Rich, and also one of the things I thought was cool was that those was that Macaulay
1: Culkin is in a Richie Rich movie, <laughs> <A> movie <laughs> yeah. called Richie Rich.
0: You know, I never saw it. Did you see it? Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, you know, uh, we were watching, and I was like, "Oh my God, they did make a live action Richie Rich movie." Yep. I I remember the cartoon. I watched the cartoon or never, whatever. Never saw the cartoon. Carbon I didn't even comics, know there was a cartoon. Right? Yeah, it, it okay. was uh It's from the. It's the line that that. Casper and all that, I think, right? All right. Although for some reason, I thought also thought mccullough Culkin was the ghost, the little boy Casper, but he wasn't.
1: No, it was that other one,
0: the other blonde kid who's uh, uh, gone on to do stuff, right?
1: No, I think he's gone on to do nothing.
0: Uh but he did stuff before. But it's not Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I know. That's really uh, creepy that they like were like. Casper died in a car accident. <laughs> he was an actual little boy. And it's like... Yeah,
1: it was... Yeah, 1995.
0: All right. We're stalling for time. While Chelsea Where is he? Yeah,
1: we are stalling for time. <laughs> Devin Sawa. Oh,
0: all right.
1: Yes, played yeah. human Casper. Okay, yes. Which, having human casper as a a thing i just i can't but um
0: yeah that was a weird i definitely had
1: a crush on him back in the day because he was in little giants which we all know i love that movie and that's why my flag football nickname was icebox Yep. um (laughs) oh he's also in idle hands oh what hey oh my
0: god the Uh, full circle here but
1: probably amongst horror crowds maybe best known for final destination oh that's right yeah 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 i think
0: so I yep so. the first one right nobody made it past the well what's her name did but
1: uh he was in or was he in two no i think just the first one all right just the first yeah one. i'm pretty sure everyone dies Death
0: took him out yeah and he's still alive though right uh yes yes okay cool i didn't want to be like uh like when i discovered that jonathan brandis died Aww. like years later that <laughs> yeah. still depresses me when i think about it
1: Yep. Nope. uh, Devin Sawa is a-okay. Devin Sawa, listener of the show. No. I stole your joke.
0: (laughs) Nice. Which I stole from some other random podcast. Yeah. So a lot of the, uh, the outfits from the club kids for this movie, which I think contributed to how they were able to make the movie for, you know, $5 million. uh, There was a lot of their outfits. Oh, neat. Yeah. Yeah. So I, Yeah, I I thought that was so cool. Did you have a favorite outfit? No, but I was really kind of surprised with with the level of like horror themed um, outfits. Because yeah. I think even um, Michael is wearing like a real like kind of gruesome outfit in the beginning.
1: Yeah, I think that was at the blood feast party.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, I, b- I believe that scene is meant to reflect that. My yeah. favorite was Seth Green's outfit when they're on that talk show. It's uh, like the weird the troll.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> That's awesome. That was really good. I really liked all of that. Yeah, just a really well done film and, and I think they, they did a great job. i did not see anything about like the filming locations, but it all seemed to be. I'm shot sure in New it's York. New York, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they even did like, you know, the like cathedral and, and yeah. all of that for the the club scenes and Yeah. And yeah, just a, a really well staged movie. Um I thought that the the death of Angel was really dramatic. Yeah. Um but it also like gave you this. I don't know if this was the way it was edited, but they gave me the sense, gave a sense of of being like high while yeah. like committing this atrocious crime.
1: I would argue that Michael is more culpable than he appears in his confession. I don't think it was like, I punched him with a sweatshirt on my hand and he died. But I do believe that he was very high and probably Freeze was also. And perhaps... Angel was also. <laughs> it seemed like everyone just did a crap ton of drugs all the time. You know, I just don't know how much of the responsibility that can uh, kind of erase. Plus the fact that after being released from jail, he did that same drug. Just makes yeah. me think a lesson has not been learned. Don't do ketamine.
0: There's something very specific in this movie I was really curious about. And I don't think it came up when we we're talking about the true crime. But uh, when Peter warms up to michael and is invited over for i believe christmas gives him a he, clock yeah a, the gift of like a grandfather clock
1: i thought that was gonna come back later in a more significant way but it didn't and i never read anything about that in my research I don't so know if
0: it was like signifying like this he's kind of removed from the type of lifestyle that like michael has and it's like here here's like a little gift for you in your in you know, an apartment and <laughs> grandfather <laughs> like, clock yeah, yeah has like people b- bring that in. And then one thing I just want to mention too was you had uh, talked about the overdose scene. And I think yeah. that the movie really, uh, the tone changes with that scene where they're, they've are they isolated themselves in the hotel room. That's where yeah. it's like they make kind of a big deal about Peter going away for a little while and they've rented this room and then it's like um, all of them are, are sort of hanging out there. And that's when Michael ODs. I just thought that was a very like, like you said, it was a really emotional, like kind of heavy, but also like beautifully done, super well acted, like part of the film.
1: Yeah. Macaulay Culkin is a great actor. He was really, I think, a highlight in the movie, the best of the m- movie bunch. I mean, Seth Green was fine. He was adequate, but man, Macaulay Culkin. And I know he's had his own drug struggles. Um, so I don't know, you know, how much of a role that played in it, but he makes an unsympathetic, character pretty sympathetic
0: you know oh, yeah. i don't know if that's a
1: good thing or a bad thing but yeah i i liked him
0: i did too yeah yeah definitely it was it was, it was such a good movie um if you haven't seen it i think we would both it's on give Amazon a prime up. yes on
1: prime we watched it it was free it was so exciting well not free <laughs> every time every time you get me with that yeah we do pay it monthly was free enough
0: all right cool yeah that's good that's good <laughs> yeah, so check it out. I um I think we've been kind of down on the couple of last movies we've watched so it was nice to watch a good one it was yeah 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 definitely all right well that wraps up party monster but um before we totally totally say goodbye to you all until the next episode do you have any now playing maybe uh recommendations or at least you can just shout out whatever you're 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 into right now and maybe uh, it will it will spark one of our listeners (laughs) into checking it out
1: Uh, so we all know that i'm a secret rom-com lover is it still secret if we all know it
0: what do we had like over 50 episodes no yeah. that's not a secret.
1: yeah i think everyone knows so i have i have two of them one is a netflix movie it was not good by any stretch but if you like the the cheesiest of rom-coms uh, young young adult romance. If you, like me, are a 30-year-old woman who likes to watch romantic stories involving high school students, I know that sounds weird. Anyway, there's a movie on Netflix called The Kissing Booth. That's adorable. I thought it was cute. It was fun. I watched it when I was home alone last weekend because uh, David abandoned me for an art show. And it was it was just adorable. I liked it a lot. I watched it because I saw that Netflix was making a sequel, and I was like, oh, if it's good enough for a sequel, it's good enough for me. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. It's good. Yeah.
1: yeah. What about you, David?
0: Hell Comes to Frogtown. Oh, I did not like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, like or not like, it's still my now playing because we recently watched it. A while back, Arrow Videohead had, had a huge sale on Blu- Blu-rays, and this was a blind buy because it stars Roddy Piper. It came out the same year that They Live came out, which They Live is a brilliant, beautiful, amazing, biting social commentary that is still true today by John Carpenter.
1: Yes, They Live is amazing.
0: This movie... This movie sucks. (laughs) uh, It was amazing in its own ways. I think we were watching it and you were not into it, and I was like, Chelsea, I've watched like five movies worse than this this week. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but you watch
1: those while I'm at work I don't have to suffer through them
0: yeah like what's
1: amazing about that movie is that it's a movie where women run everything and yet it is so sexist it so is so unbelievably yeah. sexist yeah it kind of blew my mind that such things were possible. In a movie were like, women run the military and the government. There are so many more women than men. All the men are dead. And yet, oh my God, I just didn't like it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it's directed by Donald G. Jackson and R.J. Kinzer. And it's, I think like an Empire Pictures film. So, you know, Super low budget late eighties film. I think they let Roddy Piper kind of improvise on a lot of the lines, which he came up with some of the best ones in They Live. So I think they were hoping to maybe reproduce that. There are some pretty amazing frog, frog costumes. That was the best part of costumes. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also in I feel like George M- Miller was highly inspired when he made Mad Max Fury Road.
1: Oh, actually, now that you mention it, the uncanniness of that almost makes it worth seeing. If you're like super into Mad Max Fury Road, it might be worth watching this just to like do a double take. Yeah. But don't expect it to be good at all. It's good. Yeah, even the scene that I'm thinking of right now where we almost turned it off.
0: That's not good. No. There's a very problematic scene. Yeah. You will know it when it happens.
1: Or trigger warning. They give a girl drugs to make her have sex with Roddy Piper. But it's fine because afterwards she's like in love with him. Uh-huh. And uh And then she's it's never not seen fine. again. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, that that scene is definitely problematic. Uh, yeah. But yeah. That's we all- were
1: so close to turning it off. Yeah. Thank you. Next. <laughs>
0: yeah. Do you have a coming soon?
1: Captain Marvel. We're going to watch it probably next week. We're going to go see it in theaters and I'm very excited. I think it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I'm stoked.
1: Yeah. What about you? What's your coming soon?
0: I don't know. Uh, between all these shows and traveling all over. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, Life I, is
1: insane right now. There are many yes. reasons that this episode is late and that if you're feeling like you want to complain... Just be glad you're getting an episode because <laughs> uh, it's been, um, yeah, yeah, it's been nuts. So I just
0: got back from San Diego. Uh, we're gonna be in Dallas in like less like two weeks. I'm gonna if- be in Las Vegas yep. most of
1: next week yep. for
0: work. Uh, I'll be in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Then I'll be in Austin. Uh, i then be in I don't even know Austin. You again. might be in L.A. Yeah. So in June. Yeah. 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 A lot of travel.
1: Everything is crazy. This is the first night this week that I've not spent 12 hours <laughs> at work, so yeah. we're celebrating by recording the podcast. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yep. so
0: you guys just know that we love you, except those of you that write bad reviews. Yeah, we don't love Which you. we only get bad reviews for people who start with episode one. I mean, if this is your first episode you're listening to and you've made it all this far... I mean, thank you for starting with a later episode where we've been doing this for like a super long time now. Uh, because, like, I don't know anyone that reviews an a episode that a, a, a podcast that has like almost 60 episodes and then is like on the first one, this sucks. They sound like they don't know what they're doing. Of course, we didn't know what we were doing two years ago.
1: And I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't but know. But it's doing fine. Either. Most of the bad reviews for me are just about my voice. Well, suck it. <laughs> this is my voice. <laughs> Nothing I can do about that. But yeah,
0: that's okay if I read too fast. I i read too fast if i oh i guess i have a little bit of milk vocal fry comments too
1: oh whatever you got the best voice
0: you got the best voice you got the best (laughs) left. oh yeah but it is kind of a bummer that so many people bail after the true crime uh so thank you for sticking with us through the film part because the film is also a lot of work
1: yeah and the film is the point of the podcast so is this therapy coming soon therapy (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> coming soon. Send us both to therapy. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hollywood therapy. Oh, wait, that's the movie crypt. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, anyway, uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode on Party Monster and the true events surrounding said film. You can find us on social media. You can follow us on Instagram at, what is it? <laughs> at Based, Based on, on True Crime. crime. You yeah. can follow us on Facebook on by just searching for Based on True Crime Podcast. We have an amazing uh, group on Facebook. So please feel free to jump in and participate about whatever. Yeah, we is. were
1: just sharing the trailer for Charlie says.
0: Yes, so it's fun. Also, uh, Twitter, um, not really crazy about Twitter's policies. so we've we've pretty much been boycotting Twitter because Twitter sucks. I've um,
1: deleted Twitter. because i would go on and read things that bum me out Mm. and i'm a lot happier now that i've deleted twitter so i'm I'm sorry
0: (laughs) yeah i took my lab creature page and posted basically it's like uh do not support twitter twitter is not conducive to anything join me on instagram so uh we have a patreon which i mentioned at the top of the episode but uh yeah for like a dollar a month or however much you'd like beyond that you get an exclusive episode each month that you cannot find anywhere else and we are members of the murderly podcast network so you can join some you can follow some like-minded shows by going to murder.ly yeah
1: and they post more often than us so if one episode a month doesn't cut it or if two episodes a month doesn't cut it if you're a patreon subscriber um, please go subscribe to the
0: other murderly podcast because they're
1: awesome and a lot of them are friends of ours so do it
0: Yep, go do it. And if uh, you want your horror movie, f- uh, flick fix, uh, I don't know, you could uh, follow the movie crypt. You could follow uh, She Kills, I believe, which is the Adriana Age. Adri- <laughs> Adrian Barbeau-hosted show that is a Shudder exclusive. Uh, you can follow Mick Garris's podcast, Postmortem, which is part of the Fangoria Network. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite podcasts is Shockwaves, which is part of the Blumhouse Network. So, uh, yeah, on the horror side, those are a couple of suggestions. Besides podcasting, as we mentioned, we also pour our creative hearts and souls into, well, not the soul, but uh, <laughs> lab, <laughs> lab Creature, which is our indie art business where we focus on creating weird cats and spooky art so follow us on instagram at lap creature our podcast theme podcast podcast am i sure. padding our podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, the theme and supporting music was composed and performed by the brilliant nick nico vitis of we talk of dreams you can check them out at we talk of dreams all over the place twitter and instagram we as well beyond that just remember death is but a door
1: and time is but a window
0: we'll be back sometime or other in the future yeah, <laughs> sometime <laughs> next month. Yeah, we will be for sure. All right, see you guys later. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.